when they say give 110%, this movie was like 275%. You're listening to Replaying Favorites, the podcast where two friends choose movies that they hope won't harm each other. I'm Chris Kelly. I'm Brie Callahan. What? Sorry, what? It's actually related to the conversation we had off mic, but I'm just going to leave it in. Again, we've delighted the audience by not making them privy to things that we do that influence the intros. Great. Look, people know that we're friends and that we talk when they're not listening. At least I hope everyone's aware that we are friends and we talk when you're not listening. But we also love you, and we're so glad you're here. Chris, what are we watching this week? Well, we are watching a movie that I was 50-50 on whether it would harm you. We're going to discuss 1996's The Long Kiss Goodnight. Bree, I gather that you don't know a goddamn thing about this film? That is correct. You are going to be very surprised to learn that this is a Gina Davis action-adventure. Oh, I could not be more surprised. <laughs> okay, great. I mean, maybe. I mean, you've, you've literally already said I'm probably, there's a 50-50 chance I'm going to hate it. So, good? As Gina Davis starring in an action adventure might imply, there is a lot of cognitive dissonance that one has to accept in this movie. It is tonally perhaps more arch than you are sometimes into, but also has some of the full-on bonkersness that I think you might approve of. This feels like it might hit my sweet spot. Like, you know I love a Gina Davis. You know I love things that are going off the rails in a direction towards space, as long as they're not, like, very silly. So we'll see how this goes. I couldn't even tell you what it was about. Is it, like, true lies, which I also haven't seen? <laughs> Again, as always... <laughs> I've really missed a whole bunch of the canon that a whole bunch of the rest of you were allowed to see. Oh, it would hurt me to spoil any plot details in this, but I will tell you, because I think that both of these facts will entice you further, that we have co-starring turns from both Samuel L. Jackson okay. and Brian Cox. <sighs> Friends, I don't think it's been made clear appropriately in this podcast because I don't think he's come up yet how much I love a Brian Cox. Oh, you're going to have some fun with his entry into this film. Don't worry. He's here to do the work. Okay. Okay. I'm on board. I mean, those three stars are very enticing for me. I like the concept of an action movie, generally. And... It's also what I signed up for when we decided to do this podcast. So I'm on board. Great. So we're going to take a break to watch one of my actual faves. We'll see y'all after the drum beats. And we're back from the break. If you're anything like me, you just had a great time watching The Long Kiss Goodnight. Let's lay down some fast facts about this film. This is a 1996 movie directed by Rennie Harlan, who was married to Gina Davis at the time. Oh, that explains so much. <laughs> Everyone, we're, we're off the rails before we've even started talking. This is a new record, I think. I loved every frame of this movie. Please go on. Oh, great. This movie stars 
Gina Davis, Samuel L. Jackson, Craig Bierko, Brian Cox, David Morse, Yvonne Zima, and others. It was written by Shane Black, who also wrote Lethal Weapon. It had a budget of $65 million and made back $89.5 million worldwide, which was considered disappointing. The low performance was attributed to possibly sexism, possibly some bad advertising choices by the studio, and also the fact that Gina Davis and Rennie Harlan had just made Cutthroat Island the year before, which was critically reviled and audiences hated it. Critics did like The Long Kiss Goodnight, but audiences didn't turn up, except for me, on home video, where I have watched it a million times. Brie, I have to know, what did you think of this movie? I don't exactly know what I just watched, but... I loved it, and it was one of the most bananas experiences of my entire life. I mean, for like a film criticism perspective, like this is a very bifurcated movie. There is a very fun sort of mystery thriller with Gina Davis and Samuel L. Jackson for about the first hour. And then the last hour is just a very bad Steven Seagal movie. And... I have both so many notes and no notes that I'm really interested (laughs) to see where this conversation takes us. I guess I should do like the plot summary that this movie is about Samantha Kane, a typical suburban mom who happens to have amnesia. With the help of a low-rent private detective, she discovers that she used to be a government assassin and thus unintentionally awakens her former self, which in turn involves both of them in an effort to unravel a planned act of domestic terrorism. Uh, That's the short version. There's a lot more in there. So yeah, Rennie Harlan and Gina Davis pursued this project because they wanted to make a female-led action movie because there weren't a lot of those. There still aren't a lot of those. I have a lot to say about how a male director and a male writer think (laughs) a female action star is. Since nothing about this movie makes sense, it's tough to structure a conversation about it. But Brie, what stands out to you about The Long Kiss Goodnight? We're going to have lots of topics to talk about. So like, can we just get one thing out of the way at the top, which is that The music is very intense. It starts right from the top is like, this is very serious. And then Alan Silvestri's name popped up on the screen. And I was like, oh, it's the always welcome Alan Silvestri. There was nothing but score in the first part. And now nothing but popular music in the back half of the movie. There was not a single frame of this movie that was not scored or had a piece of popular music playing behind it. There was not a single moment of silence. It absolutely added to the cacophony that was happening all around it. Oh, yeah. This is a more is more movie start to finish. <laughs> this is, I, you know, I've I've said so much now a hat on a hat since you said it, I think, in like the fifth element or something. This is like a hat on a hat on top of a hot air balloon. <laughs> the aesthetic is too much. The driving vision of this is too much. But while it is overwhelming, I find it start to finish enjoyable. I mean, you're never bored. That's for damn certain. No, you're definitely never bored. But I don't think that the action movie part itself on the back half was particularly successful. Like, I don't think that when they set out to make this movie that they thought that that I was supposed to laugh out loud at a small child tearfully yelling. You can see why it's one of my favorites. Do you even know what I'm going to say? 
I mean, it's a, it's about her final monologue, which she's telling her mother to get up because life is pain. Is that what you're laughing at? But I don't think the director expected me to like laugh out loud. And now this is like take four on me trying to get this out when he directed a tearful young girl to scream, life is pain, mommy, as she thumps Gina Davis. <laughs> I think he thought that I was going to take that seriously, and I absolutely could not and cannot. <laughs> well, it's funny because so much of this movie is intentionally funny and successfully so. Like, yeah, there are some really clever and really bonkers lines. I think the moment that might have made me laugh the most in cinema history is Samuel L. Jackson deadpanning to Gina Davis about her daughter, what's her name, Cathead? As if that is a possible name for a child to have. Cathead. I cried the first time I heard that. I had to stop the movie. It's very, very funny. This movie is also perhaps the film with the largest number of dick jokes I've ever watched in my entire movie. Like, they either talked about dick or referenced the groin so many more times than I thought could be done in film. And yet here we are. And I bring that up because many of them are silly, but there was a really tremendous uh, dick joke, which is Samuel Jackson tucking his pistol. He's like, what do you want me to do? Tuck it into my pants and shoot my dick off? And she goes, what are you, a sharpshooter now? <laughs> which is a genuinely cutting remark. And then it's just left. There's so many jokes that just get left aside. Like no one, no one picks them up and they're so great. It's worth watching this movie twice simply to catch all of the little stupid, wonderful one-liners. And I think, weirdly, a lot of them are given to Gina Davis in the first half in her, like, mom persona. I like that even though she's not the, like, badass bitch yet, as a normal suburban mom, she's still smart and sharp and funny. Like, when Samuel L. Jackson... Cat calls that woman who's jogging. She's like, yeah. oh, wow, you saw her boobs. That's so neat. And it's perfect. And it even happens before the accident with the old drunk pervy man who I did not care that he died. She's got kind of an edge to her, even when it is couched in sort of mom niceness at the beginning of the film. So I give a lot of credit to the script because as much as it is bombastic and overdone. I think there is genuine wit throughout. A lot of the lines are smart funny, even if a lot of it is also stupid funny. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the writing is smart funny. A lot of what happens is stupid funny. I mean, where to begin? So much happens. As you said, this is at least two movies in one to begin with. So you're getting more bang for your buck there. It's two hours. The plot is convoluted. It was yet another movie where I thought we were wrapping up and it turned out we were actually only about an hour in and halfway through. I could not have been more surprised when I pressed pause to like go grab some more water. Even having seen this movie many times, I am always amazed at how long we spend at the end on that bridge. This movie could have ended maybe six or seven times, but more is more. It was at least a half an hour too long, <laughs> like, to be perfectly honest. I will disagree with you there because I could watch this movie indefinitely. So another half hour, even if it is a half hour of full nonsense, I'm on board. Like she's grabbing a Christmas light strand attached to a flaming corpse <laughs> and I'm okay with it. 
like my notes at the end are just like, what, what, wait, what? <laughs> I also would like to make a strong case that they possibly got like a discount on helicopters because there are <laughs> so many helicopters in this film. It feels like someone was running a special. Like, I guess if they had it for one shot, they may as well have it for all of them. There is a surprising number of like aerial descent into the shot for whatever reason. Someone's always flying in. I think part of the charm of this movie, and I would argue that this is perhaps the most camp movie that you've assigned, the movie has a real jankiness to it. You understand that there's a big budget, but I was still surprised to see like an actual helicopter every time because it just seemed like really lowball. Everything about it was so bananas. I mean, <laughs> to your point about the budget, there are some really middling special effects especially at the end there's a lot of set pieces that they sort of just barely pull off but then they built david morse like a whole torture barn <laughs> like, <why? laughs> like that is not even an efficient way to torture somebody i mean i'm no expert so, so it's funny because what they ran into a lot of problems with was green screening specifically. Like, yeah. the shot of Craig Bierko falling off the bridge into the water looks like a goddamn video game. Yeah. And that's the best they could come up with. There was a whole planned set piece. I mean, we have a lot to talk about with Gina Davis ice skating. But <laughs> the reason that that is in the movie <laughs> is because they had planned for her to do a crazy, like, double axle upside down flip while shooting guns, <laughs> but they couldn't make it look right. Most of me is glad that they made that choice, but a sliver of me really wants to know what that looked like. I really want to know what that looks like. I'm so glad that you brought up the ice skating. This entire movie is like Chekhov's movie. Like there are so many <laughs> elements and, and like the movie is always working really hard to make sure that you saw them. Like, did you see that? Did you definitely see that? How about the doll? Bet you the doll's important later. And it was just time after time after time. Like, as soon as she touched those skates going into the house, I was like, well, I thought the daughter was going to have to skate away from her and then somehow, like, learn a lesson about, like, growing up. But no, it was Gina Davis instead. Chris, I love this movie so much. It is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I would like everyone to think about how long it takes to lace up an ice skate. <laughs> the idea that you could enter a high-speed chase on ice skates when you did not start that chase on ice skates is like those people are gone and does she put them does she put them on on the stoop i have so many questions i also very much thought that timothy was in that sedan so i was deeply surprised when he was in the church in the next scene abducting the kid which was also scored to the absolute limits but there was just some other random guy who looked just like him so i thought he was dead that is a problem in this movie is that there is an extra in a car who looks exactly like their lead antagonist. I am a little bit taken aback every time and I know it's not him, but I'm still like, oh, it's that guy that looks exactly like Craig Bierko. Yeah, I was just like, oh, I guess we're all wrapped up here. Hey, wait, like I thought he had come back from the dead, which he does ultimately wind up doing because it's the 90s and any good villain has to come back at least two or three times to get your bang for your buck. But oh, this movie. Should we at least, like, do the good movie first and then we can turn to the Bananas movie? Yes, let's rewind because we haven't really talked about the beginning where Gina Davis is just a nice lady leading a nice life, but she has only remembered the past eight years of her existence. This is 
a tried and true setup. She wonders what happened before. She has hired a shitty detective to find that out who lucks into something. I love the setup. I'm drawn in by this story. They have an incredible chemistry. I love Gina Davis and Samuel L. Jackson together. They're both acerbic and funny together and their dialogue like really snaps. And you're right. Like it is a pretty standard gumshoe noir. Yeah, there there are like noir elements of yeah. this mystery woman who has she's, you know, normal, but strikingly beautiful and covered in scars. And what could it all mean? And there is no scuzzier detective than Samuel L. Jackson in this movie. I love the establishing scene of him fake arresting the man that he has set up. The detail of the homeless man he has hired throwing up mid-arrest is, it's way too much, but it's so funny. <laughs> I thought maybe they had been partners when they were spies or something. So I had no idea that he was going to be a PI. So I was deeply confused and I was just like, is this a bit? It was kind of a weird introduction for me seeing it the first time. I think now understanding the movie's aesthetic and sense of humor, I think I'll appreciate it more in a second watching. The moment when you really understand how this movie is going to go is her first dream sequence. Oh my god. Because that is when things start getting roll wild. Like she is in like a thunderstorm on a cliff with a mirror talking to a version of herself that looks dramatically different. And it's so, so much. Like, it is the first time you really realize, like, oh, we're going to layer a million layers onto this for no reason. She was moments away from saying Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Like, it was <laughs> so strange. I might have looked at that in post and been like, let's not include that. It's not needed. I do think that is the one part of the movie that I might cut, both because it looks kind of dumb, but also because... I think the plot works better if she just starts discovering these parts of herself on her own and the audience doesn't have a sense of what she will turn into, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's my overall big critique of this movie is that it is so determined that you're going to stay on board with it that it has to absolutely telegraph every single thing that it's going to do. So it's not content for you to wait and like figure out the mystery yourself. As funny as the script is, I don't think that it is, like, well-written as a story. As you pointed out, there's a lot of Chekhov's gun, but the thing about Chekhov's gun is that you set it up in the first act and it comes back in the third act. This movie sets it up in one scene and pays it off in the very next scene every <laughs> single time. Every single time. The only one that didn't go was, and I started trying to guess them, the only one that didn't go was David Morse putting the gun in his waistband. I was sure he was going to shoot his dick off. <laughs> I mean, David Morse is the one person, like, I'm not sure if she kills him or not. He never she comes doesn't. back. I it's a strange thing that that is the one, I, I don't want to say the one because there are a million loose ends, I'm sure. But like David Morse is a big part of this movie, but it seems like we're setting up a situation where he's intentionally not dead, but he never resurfaces. She just like shoots him in the knee and then pieces out. Yeah, I, I guess she hands him over to the authorities. It's not super clear. In addition to dicks, this movie is obsessed with knees and eyes. I don't understand the obsession with 
these particular body parts. Just kill the people. You can see that she does because she shoots the Timothy lookalike directly in the skull uh, while she furiously skates across a pond. Maybe now is the time to talk about this. This movie, while in many ways feminist, has a very complicated relationship with I don't even want to say women because Samuel L. Jackson's assistant is gone after the first few scenes. And then it's just Gina Davis. And this movie wants to be feminist and sometimes is. But there are moments when it is still clearly written and directed by men. Oh, yeah. I mean, the movie does pass the Bechdel test because Gina Davis and the girl talk about lots of other things besides a man. I don't know if it's feminist. It's not. Not. (laughs) 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 But like, I feel like this movie defies labels as much as it defies a genre. So I don't know. It like wasn't even something I thought about because I was literally hanging on as we were sliding through like part of a bridge or down a mountain or like anything else. So I guess good job, movie. Like if you didn't want me to think critically about you, mission accomplished. A production note is that Rennie Harlan and Gina Davis did have to fight because the studio tried to turn this into a movie led by a man. And they were pretty confident that they should keep the lead character a woman. And I'm glad that they did, because I do think that there are really great moments where Gina Davis, she's not just being a manly woman. She's being herself, but also someone who happens to know how to shoot guns and blow up buildings. But there are times when she does things like reference how fat her ass has gotten, even though we've just seen her naked and very thin in the shower, that I'm like, a man wrote that line. (laughs) Yeah, realizing now that her husband wrote and directed this movie, I had written a note, something about like, I hope Gina Davis is very happy to be doing this much like nudity and wet clingy clothes. And she probably was because she was doing it for her partner. What I like about the movie is that you're right, she doesn't like learn and grow. It's not like she starts out as like an an unfeeling person. And then she like, you know, through the miracle of her child turns into a woman who can like live in society. Instead, she sort of like takes these two pieces of her personality and like fuses them. Counterpoint, there are a lot of gauzy see-through white dresses. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a it's a mixed bag. The other thing that I don't know if it was even intentional, but She and Samuel L. Jackson get to have a really complicated, really emotional relationship, especially towards the end. They both think they are going to die and they get like tender moments of joining together and being like, we are fighting a tough fight that we might not survive. And I think that two men in that situation would have had to man up and be tough. And I think that having a woman lead the show allowed the writer to think about how two people might connect to each other on an emotional level, which was actually really nice, especially in a movie that is largely clownish in how bombastic it is. Yeah, I don't think that all of those moments worked. I was really quite keen for them to like get together in the first part of the movie because I thought they had like a real crackle energy between them. But then when she's in her like mean, Charlie, sexy persona. I just didn't feel like they had as much chemistry. Like, I didn't feel like those two characters had as much chemistry. And while it was nice to see them connect before they, like, went out to battle, 
one of these sort of white gauzy dress moments was her being like, well, I'm probably going to get my head blown off. So this is the last time I'm going to be pretty. And then him like reaching out to touch her hair. And I was like, all right, hat on a emu on an ostrich. Like it was just too much. And then they like kissed for a second. And I was like, how is she going to reintegrate to her life with what's his name? Maybe she and Sam Jackson will just go off together. But instead, they have her like go back to her sort of pedestrian life, which I don't know, made me like a little bit happy, a little bit sad. I think the scriptwriter has a real tough time with the version of this character that is just a government hired killer. I think that her cutting her hair and putting on lots of makeup and being overtly sexual, I think that the initial transformation especially is overdone and is like a man's idea of what like a tough, empowered woman looks like. <laughs> yeah, very true. <laughs> it's also kind of a fun opportunity for Gina Davis to play with her persona. And that was why I kind of wondered if maybe she wasn't into sort of doing more of this like sexy stuff and some of the nudity because she had had sort of a very like good girl persona, the long red locks and like her kind of statuesque beauty. And so like kind of scuzzing her up a little bit, I actually thought was kind of fun. And my guess would be is that Gina Davis kind of had some fun cutting her hair off and dyeing it blonde. And now is probably a good time to talk about the fact that Gina Davis knocks this role out of the goddamn park. When I saw initially action movies starring Gina Davis, that didn't sound like a thing that should happen or would work. And I think she's really, really good in all aspects of this wide ranging role. I think she does really well, especially early in the movie, in the initial action scenes with Sam Jackson, where she's having to switch very quickly between Samantha and Charlie. And she doesn't remember sometimes moments later that she just shot three guys or they just fled a grenade and jumped three stories into a pool. And then she also does really, really well with both either completely Charlie or with completely Samantha. I think she struggles a little bit in the quieter moments where she's still wrestling between the two of them. Like there's that scene where she's looking through the rifle scope at the nativity scene and that one was just kind of blank. Like I could see Gina Davis like trying to make decisions about how to look rather than sort of leaning into it. But I think her work, especially in the first half of the film where she's just like either a badass or like, wait, what is like really super great. It is a difficult role to assign someone because this movie is fully nonsense. Not that Samuel L. Jackson had an easy time of it necessarily, but he is doing the Samuel L. Jacksonist role that I've ever seen. And he has said that this is his favorite role of his that he has played, which like, of course it is. This is like what he was born to do. And she has a lot of really strange things to try to pull off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so does he. He's got a lot of weird things that happen to his character. He's got that nice tender scene with his son. Like, I actually think that while he's doing a lot of the Sam Jackson that we know and love, I think he's got some nice tender moments here, too, where he's given a little bit more like emoting to do. And, and I, I thought, I mean, it's a great performance from him. Well, the nice thing about this movie, too, is that because it is so extra, everyone ends up getting to do a lot, even when they only have a small part. Like, Brian Cox is not here for that long, but he comes in swinging with that comedic monologue, which is one of the funniest things I'm sure he's ever done, and still gets to be, like, the hard-bitten spy for the rest of it. 
the prissiness that he brings to this role is so incredible and not something I would have ever expected out of Brian Cox. That monologue is not only perfect, <laughs> it is so welcome as written when he identifies that the dog is licking its ass because I did think that that old lady was breastfeeding it. <laughs> <laughs> I was literally sitting there listening, half listening to what he was saying and then being like, oh, okay. <laughs> it says everything about this movie that you thought it was a legitimate possibility that this lady was breastfeeding a dog. <laughs> okay, we've recovered from that. Brian Cox is given so much weird ass dialogue to say. I had to roll back that explanation of her dad being in like the British army in Northern Ireland and then she was adopted. I was sure that that was going to be important in some way and it was not important at all. No, I mean, I have to wonder what was left on the cutting room floor of this movie, because it does seem like everything has to be explained a hundred times for longer than is necessary. Brian Cox, even in the most banana situations possible, manages to turn in just almost sheer perfection. I mean, I don't think there's a bad acting job in this movie, which says a lot about Rennie Harlan, because all of these actors must have gotten this script thrown into this situation and been like, what the fuck is happening and all of them commit a million percent and they all deliver really great work maybe except for the girl playing caitlin as the daughter who is just kind of there wow. hard take on caitlin i'm gonna disagree her delivery of <laughs> life is pain mommy is my oscar of the year sadly you are laughing at and not with her performance <laughs> which is a problem to give Caitlin credit, her literal name is Yvonne Zima, which is maybe the best drag name I've ever heard. <laughs> There's also a very particular young white girl that is always chosen for these roles. Like, if you had told me that that was the girl from Mad Men, I would have believed you. Like, there's just like eight little girls that all look the same and they live across time and space and they just appear in all of these movies when required. Well, she's almost like every other little white girl, except that she has to have Craig Bierko's exact downturned eyes. <laughs> that I did also see coming. I didn't see his reaction to it. Just like, somebody go get that little bitch who's supposed to be my daughter. <laughs> and like that moment's totally thrown away too. Like it doesn't change any of the course of the movie. Like it's completely unnecessary. I was really in it. In an, we are being very silly in this episode, but in an actual serious moment, I was very glad to see that the child was a product of a consensual union. I was very afraid that one of the reasons why she was hunting them was because like he had raped Charlie. So great job, guys. Way to keep rape out of the story where it is not needed which is almost everywhere. Fair. I will say, I question whether he wouldn't have done the math on that. If you're barebacking Gina Davis and now she has an eight-year-old kid, you do the math, buddy. I'm not really sure that that guy was just like, this child looks approximately eight years old. Like, I don't think that man knows how old kids are. <laughs> Gina Davis barely knows how old kids are in that movie. Um, one of my other favorite moments, since we're talking about Caitlin, First of all, the ice skating scene, the initial one, where Caitlin learns that life is pain. I like to think about this from Charlie's perspective. So she's just woken up in this body, right? She's just taken control, but she is still deeply committed to Caitlin learning to ice skate. Like, 
why wouldn't she just be like, whatever, kid, I'll be in the car or like leave? (laughs) She's like, no, you're going to learn to fucking skate. It's really important. (laughs) I had never thought of that before. And actually, Caitlin is still related to the to my part B, which is why we're talking about this. The the only thing that is not telegraphed in this entire movie is Caitlin having a retainer. So here's the thing. That retainer doesn't do anything anything. That doll already shoots a real clear stream of kerosene into (laughs) a well-defined well that Gina Davis has created. It is not telegraphed because it is useless. It's also, has no one smelled the kerosene that is surely emanating out of that little baby doll that that girl has been carrying around for like the half an hour or however long that took them to get them out of the basement? (laughs) Also, While they do telegraph, you have 30 seconds to get out of the basement. In what world do the people shining flashlights on (laughs) Gina Davis not notice that she is ducked away for 25 seconds to fill a doll with an explosive liquid? And that kid would be so high. Also, that is the scene. I This bothers me every time. Gina Davis knows that her daughter still has the candle and still has the matches because that's how she found her in the fucking first place. And she never thinks to ask, hey, sweetie, do you still have those matches that I gave you? Like, that should be the first thing on her mind. She's been so smart this whole time. And now she's just like hacking at the ground with a steel (laughs) hook and sobbing like it doesn't hurt to ask. It is so bonkers that she could have pulled like a feather duster out of there. Like anything could have happened and I would have been like checks out. Like by the movie's logic, it would have made perfect sense. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the first Caitlin moments is that when the man with one eye breaks through the door and shoots at them with a shotgun, Gina Davis picks that girl up like a fucking suitcase and hurls her (laughs) into the treehouse in what is another one of the most unintentionally hilarious visuals I have ever seen. Again, the first bit of this movie I thought was going to be like, kind of some bits of comedy, but was going to be like a pretty straight story. So when the entire wall of their house exploded from a single shotgun blast, but the fridge door survived, I didn't know where to look. Like, this movie doesn't know how bodies work. Like, the husband got thrown, the child is thrown. Later, Sam Jackson is ejected from a building, flies through a sign, hits a tree, lands, stands up, and flings a knife into a guy's throat. Oh, God. And it was, like, shortly after they kissed, and I was just like, are her spy skills, like, transmitted through saliva? Like, what is happening? Well, this movie also doesn't know what spies do. Like, one of her first awakening things about being a spy is that she can chop vegetables very quickly, which I can't imagine that Charlie Baltimore ever had to do. I don't know why I'm trying to explain it. Like, it's my movie. I'm sure it was just to show that she really knows how to use a knife. That scene, again, friends, go back and watch it. It is being scored by, like, yakety sacks and i thought it was so bonkers but it did make the call back when gina davis was like it's what chefs do after she snaps that guy's neck truly great um big shout out to the husband who's just like you know go find what you need to find like and whatever it is don't worry i'm not scared i'm like as soon as she goes off in that car, you pack up you, you pack up Caitlin, and you guys got to get out of there because you just watched her kill a man. I was shocked that A, Gina Davis leaves without any protection for her family. B, her family is not like, 
What if a second person comes to try to kill us and you're not here to suddenly be a fucking superhero? Like, these people are in danger. You should leave town. The degree to which the movie thinks that she will just be able to, like, resume her, like, happy middle-class suburban life is so funny. <laughs> like, is that man not traumatized? He watched a man get killed in front of him by the woman that he loves. That would do me in. They also work really hard to justify Sam Jackson staying with her throughout this. But that man was in the right when he was like, I just got to get the fuck out of here. This is too much. Yeah, my note is, yes, Sam Jackson is making the right decision here. Keep walking, my friend. And he keeps coming back. I think actually the highlight of the movie for me is Sam Jackson laying in the road quietly coming to a dawning realization that this has happened to him, taking out a cigarette and just smoking it until Gina Davis comes back. That quiet moment from him is, I think, his best in the film. It's really, really good. Friends, if someone pushes you out of a moving car, go ahead and don't get back into that car when they pull up again. I guess there are some payoffs for him at the end, but not any that he could have anticipated. Like, he even references it. Well, notably, too, before test audiences saw this movie, Sam Jackson's character died. They had to do reshoots to make it like, no, he's fine and he has a good life now. And I feel like he should have anticipated earlier that he was not going to make it. I watched that man get shot in the head, so I was real surprised when he came barreling out of the back of a semi in a different car that is completely unexplained. That's the car that they had put the frozen body into. There's a lot of moving parts here. One of the things that this movie really struggles with is the physical location of all the set pieces and like, where's Gina Davis when she's shooting versus Samuel L. Jackson and just kind of putting all of those pieces together so that you, the audience, have like a lay of the land. There were just too many moving parts. That helicopter that shows up once she's on the bridge, Sam Jackson had referenced the fact that maybe the police had been called. So I was like, are those the police? And then she shot them in the head and the man set his crotch on fire with a flare. And then was that a different helicopter? Like, there was just... <laughs> The last 20 minutes, it was just a big basket of puppies and like whipped cream. Like it was just everywhere and everyone was having a great time. But like it was going to be a real mess to clean up. So there are indicators that we're going to have too much complication when we start to get into the interconnection between Craig Bierko's. I don't even know what his organization is. Generic bad guys. And the CIA that is run by the same man that ran it eight years ago, even though we've had to have had at least one administration change since then. The fact that this all comes down to like people talking about appropriations hearings is like so very funny to me. But no one does more with like two lines in this movie than the guy who plays the president, who very snarkily tells the CIA, who's just like, get fucked, federales, like, I'm giving your money to healthcare. It's so weird, because on the one hand, this movie seems to not think that the CIA deserves more funding, but also the idea that that funding would go to healthcare is comical. Yeah, it's like presented as a laugh line. Like that president is actually just really into Medicare for all. Like good for him. To a 2020 audience, it's like, 
yes, we can stop here. Correct. Everyone go home. The fact also that Timothy was supposed to kill her eight years ago, I was like, when he was a teen? Like, how old are we supposed to expect that he is? Yeah, that's a real weird problem with this movie in general, is that all of these people who are supposed to have been the top of their field eight years ago would have been like early, mid-twenties. Why did time freeze for everyone eight years ago? I, yeah, I feel like what happened is they hung so many Christmas ornaments on this tree that they wound up kind of boxing themselves into certain things that like don't wind up making sense. She really should have just been out of the game for like a year or two, have started a new life, and then she gets like pulled back in. Instead, because it, we have to have a child involved who has to be of a certain age to like walk and talk and have a retainer. Instead, nothing has changed in geopolitics or anything else since eight years ago. Okay, so to get us back on track with the plot, Gina Davis and Samuel L. Jackson abandon Brian Cox on the side of the road and steal his car and <laughs> head to a farm that they believe hosts her former fiance. And then Charlie is awakened. And of course, they are immediately tracked by Brian Cox. I also just want to give a shout out to this movie for both Brian Cox and later Timothy, both having extremely micro-specific knowledge about all of the locations in like the New York, Pennsylvania area. And later Timothy is like, what's your location? And she gives him like, we're on this highway by this exit. And he's like, great, meet me at a Holiday Inn. There's one really close to you. Like he knows where all of the Holiday Inns in the state are. Like what a very specific amount of brand loyalty. It makes me very happy. I would also like to point out that Samuel L. Jackson then points to a random address of a phone company to Gene Davis. And he's like, can you get there in 15 minutes? And she can, she knows where that is, even though she's in a state she has presumably never been in before. Exactly. So, of course, eventually they turn up at David Morris's. That barn looked like someone in this movie had just watched The Princess Bride, like, as they were writing it. And this is, of course, another gauzy white dress moment. Oh, dear Lord. This is one of her, like, masterclass scenes in terms of having to transition between the two characters. And I think she gets the badassery right and the writer gets the badassery right in this scene where she's not being macho, but she is bantering with him in a way that feels like she has the upper hand and she knows it. It's also the moment where Charlie stops being a psycho that lives in Samantha's brain. So I like the movie a lot better when the Charlie persona wasn't just like a crazy lady, but was actually just like a tough lady. And I think that, that was a, a good change. But in the same scene where like Gina Davis is like flashing guns and being a badass, they put a naked, tied up black man looking scared down in a basement, like looking up through some slats. I did not like that at all because it looked like he was below deck. That was not good. And the movie should have thought of another way to convey that. It seems egregious because it doesn't even fit with the plot. Like it's so shoehorned in that he is in that exact position that it's a bad, very conscious decision. Once you realize that you've done that, you have to fix it. And if you don't, then you fucked up. So it's not clumsy. Like, it's bad. And we cut pretty harshly to the two of them in a motel and Gina Davis having a full makeover montage. Yeah, she's just vamping it up. I know that you weren't a big fan of the look that they settle on for her, but I think it's kind of fun. What I do like about her look is that 
they very intentionally made her easy to appreciate in the early scenes with like long curly hair and red lips and she's just the girl next door and to go against that and be like she has a lot of black eyeliner on and short blonde hair and she's doing things that she thinks looks good not what she thinks will attract a man i think the movie it takes a little while to iron out what Charlie's likes and wants are. The character felt much more developed at the very end of the movie than it did in that initial scene where she's like becoming Charlie. Samantha was funny, but Charlie isn't funny. So she and Sam Jackson don't really have a whole lot to connect on anymore because they don't have any kind of shared experience together, aside from what they're about to have. Their dynamic changed, and I don't think the movie did a great job of reassessing how these two characters were going to interact together. Yeah, there is a certain amount of Charlie coming back towards Samantha, I think they could have sold that better. I think because this is not a subtle movie, they couldn't work in those nuances. I think that the intention there is really good of finding that midpoint between the lady who likes to murder people and the lady on the PTA. But because this is not a subtle script, they can't find that balance really easily. It feels like they did some jarring things to make Charlie come out of Samantha, but then Samantha just sort of comes naturally back into part of Charlie through like growth and experience or something. But I don't think they had the time because there were people literally lighting their pants on fire with flares in helicopters. Yes, so that's the issue is that we're at the turning point where this turns into a full action movie where we learn that the CIA is going to stage a terrorist attack to blow up a small town in Niagara Falls. This movie has got to be just catnip for 9-11 truthers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a weird psychicness to a lot of it, which is a little uncomfortable watching, but I just have to remember that they had no way of knowing. This is just a fever dream from people who are trying really hard. What this actually feels like is the monkey with the typewriter. They just typed so many pages of script (laughs) and hung so many bells and whistles off this thing that they eventually came up with Bush did (laughs) (laughs) 9-11. Oh my God. I don't know how they did it, but like, great job, guys. Yeah, so Gina Davis goes to a motel that has been overtaken by the CIA and terrorists and no one notices. I also was not wearing my glasses for the back half of the film. So I thought they were going... (laughs) When they got the sheet of paper that told them where to go, I thought they they were going to the Deep Lick Motel. (laughs) I mean, the Deer Lick Motel is not significantly better. Well, they'll have a chance to change the name when they replace the sign that they shot Samuel L. Jackson through. (laughs) So... They rescue Caitlin. They rescue Cathead. And then <laughs> Gina Davis gets her in her hands and is immediately like, run and hide. She doesn't tell her any other information. And so, of course, they lose Caitlin as soon as they find her. Yeah, that girl is basically the guffin of this movie. They were always trying to find that child. I don't know that I 100% believe that a small child would choose to hide in a vehicle. And... Then does she actually get locked in there? Because when the vehicle started moving, 
if I were an eight-year-old, I'd be like, oh, this seems bad. And I would roll out. I wouldn't wait for it to like come up to speed and see what happens. It's unclear if she's stuck or if she's dumb. I have to say, <laughs> while many of the characters are written as fairly smart, Caitlin doesn't seem to have her act together. I have to say, she does not seem like she's written as eight. Like, eight-year-olds are pretty savvy. I thought she was more like five. So I was really surprised when she wound up being like a third grader. So we all get in various trucks and we drive to the bridge that is the border between the United States and Canada. And then we have to spend a half an hour fighting. Let's talk about everything that happens there. I don't know that I can. I don't think my brain was able to process it all. I just want to step back just really quick before we even get to the bridge. I was just like, no, Sam, don't sacrifice yourself for this white woman's child. And he just ran right in there anyway. And I was like, okay. So I did think he was dead. And I was very pissed at the movie that they didn't spend even a second dealing with that before moving on. So I guess I should have predicted the scene on the bridge is just absolutely bananas. I've just written, oh, good, we stopped just short of the CAA bombing Canada. I would love to say that it's too long. Again, I don't think that I could stop watching this movie if I tried. I think I'll be 90 and re-watching this shit. So even though... <laughs> While breastfeeding a dog. Oh my God. So even though it should have stopped half an hour ago... I'm so excited for Gina Davis to walk slowly up to a truck that is about to blow up and to collapse and for her daughter to spend 10 minutes talking her up and then for Sam Jackson to awake from death and drive out of a truck that why is it even there to almost hit. I don't even know if that man is a policeman or another terrorist. <laughs> I don't know who the person on the speaker is. But Sam Jackson's going to get him out of the way and he's going to save the day. It's it, None of it makes any sense and I love all of it. I still right now talking to you don't know if there was one helicopter or two helicopters. I couldn't begin to tell you it's so dumb. I want to give a shout out to Sam Jackson because he drives through the dumbest scene in movie history. And then <laughs> the truck blows up. There's a moment where little Caitlin screams, don't hit the cars. And amidst fire raining in the sky, he looks at her to be like, bitch, are you fucking serious right now? It's the best thing I've ever seen. Unacknowledged by the movie is the fact that all of the police cars have chased them after Sam Jackson, like, leads them onto the bridge. And every single one of those vehicles blew up with the bridge and with the truck and everything else. All of those cops are dead and it's 100% their fault. Nobody cares. No one cares. They've also just crossed the border into Canada illegally, though apparently that checkpoint is unmanned at night, so it doesn't matter. I mean, if you look at this movie for even a second with a critical eye, you're going to find 7,000 problems. It's just like a spa experience where you just have to accept it. And you're like, yeah, this massage hurts, but it's going to like benefit me in the end. That's <laughs> that's all this is. You just have to let the movie enter you without filter. Way too many dick jokes for a movie that also wants to enter me. <laughs> so I don't really have any further thoughts on this other than this might be one of my favorite films of all time. Brie, did you enjoy this film? I enjoyed the hell out of it. It was absolutely 
one of the most bananas experiences I've ever had. I am going to think about little Caitlin's tearful screaming so often, and I'm going to laugh every time. Like I said, I think this movie is a real success, but not at what it tried to be, a lot of which is a very serious action movie in the back half. But damn, if I didn't enjoy almost every single second, I do think I would have cut 20 minutes out of some of the back and forth, if for no other reason, the bad guys monologuing for like five minutes, like we get it. Like, I think there was some some bloat, but (laughs) absolutely ridiculous. And I couldn't have enjoyed it more. I think this might be the platonic ideal of the podcast that we set out to create. If you agree, you can leave us a five star rating. We are on Instagram at Replaying Favorites. We're on Twitter at Replaying Faves, F-A-V-S. All that's left is to discuss what we will do next episode. So, Brian, what is our next movie? I am picking a movie that I think this movie might have been an inspiration for. And that movie is 2017's Atomic Blonde. Oh. I deeply feel that the haircut, at least, was inspired by this film. And I think you might like it for some of the same reasons that you like this movie. So I pivoted from something that was near and dear to my heart, although Atomic Blonde is also near and dear to my heart, to something that I thought you might really enjoy or you might hate. But either way, it's of a pair with this movie. Do you know anything about Atomic Blonde? I have seen the trailer. I love Charlize Theron. I think we are headed in the right direction, and I'm excited to watch this. Well, it definitely has some favorite people from this podcast, and there's a couple of people in this film that I think you might enjoy seeing a second time. So we will see you all next week when we watch Atomic Blonde. Bye, everybody. Bye. In this movie, if it doesn't have big flashing lights, it might as well not be there.